what it is i tune into that non-stop me just re-singing the theme song we could release it on spotify you think it would be popular i think that the theme song's better than the podcast so <laughs> way to sell us well oh, no, welcome to the podcast yeah hopefully, welcome to us <laughs> hopefully today's episode will you know at least be on par with the theme song i'm alicia i'm lauren and welcome to tv and women where we like to Basically, ramble through the lives and works and the deviousness of <laughs> women from history. <laughs> it's been a long day. It has been a long day. But that's okay. Yep. Well, let's burn some brain calories. Yeah. But before we burn our brain calories, let's kill a few by raising a glass. <laughs> raising a glass. To our Deviant Woman of the Week, Scotch and Coke this week. And uh, this week we're going to be talking about Leonora Carrington. Leonora Carrington. Because I feel like we can just give up on doing the build-up where we mysteriously talk about the person. We probably should. Because we've discussed this in the past. I think that the we've given the game away on that one a few times. So it's Leonora Carrington who we're going to be talking about this week. And she's much more of a... Contemporaneous. Contemporaneous. Yeah, hey. so we didn't even do the bit. Here's the thing. We have a friend who is a very amazingly awesome friend of ours. Long time listener. <laughs> and she pointed out to us that the word that we wanted when we say Deviant Women, where we discuss women from history and mythology and literature, and then we go and contemporary Contempor- times, Contemporaneous. It's contemporaneity. So there you go. We figured it out. <laughs> Listen to us. We're such good academics. And we're English academics. And we're, so, yeah, we're really good with the words. So we're going to be bringing it into contemporary times and we're going to be talking about Leonora Carrington, who is a very interesting individual. She's most famous as a surrealist painter. This is primarily how I know of her work. Yeah, yep. but she also was a writer as well. So mm. um, wrote a novel and some short stories. Yeah, so she was kind of part of that whole surrealist movement in the early 1900s. And then she passed away in about 2011. So she's probably the most recent person we've spoken yeah. about. I just read this today that apparently one of her works sold for, I don't know the number, but it was a very high number, and apparently it was the highest number of a living surrealist ever sold. Oh, right. So this was while she was alive. Yes, so before and while she was alive. Yeah, yeah. So she has sort of really had a resurgence in popularity. I think in the last couple of years, people have kind of been discovering her. I mean, she was very popular during her lifetime as well, but she's certainly not one of the more well-known surrealists I Mm. suppose because I think when people think of surrealism they tend to think of the men so they tend to think of people like Dali and Magritte and even people like Man Ray and Decamp who were a little bit earlier and kind of more 
associated with that sort of Dada movement. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the women kind of get left out of the story of surrealism a little bit. So let's not leave them Let's not leave out them out. Anymore. Let's not leave them out anymore, man. So tell us where does... Okay, so I feel like with a woman like Leonore Carrington, you kind of really have to go back... She had an interesting child. Well, she did. She a, did. A pretty interesting childhood, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, the story of Leonora Carrington is going to take us across the globe a little bit. <laughs> but we're going to go way back to the very beginning to Lancashire. Yay! In England. Lancashire. Um, where my people are from. Is it really? Yeah. How very interesting. Were it's they weird. there in 1917? Yes. Well, that was the year that Leonora <laughs> Carrington, perhaps, they were there. Maybe they... Were the someone was the midwife? Perhaps. Yeah, could yeah. it be? They pass each other on their bikes on the street. Well, well that's fascinating. I mean, it's a large county. Probably never happened. <laughs> um, but she was born in Lancashire, in England, and she was born to a bit of an aristocratic family. Yeah, wow, that was hard one. to say. Mm. Um, <laughs> and her father was kind of like a wealthy textile tycoon, basically. And then, yeah, because they were new money. Yeah, they were yeah. new money. And I think later on he had something to do with the sort of chemical industry and that sort of stuff. But oh. I, I don't really know too much about that. Right. But very but wealthy. Shouldn't you know more about that, Alicia? Because after all, aren't the men in women's lives very important? Yeah, well, that's right. We were talking about that. <laughs> but we'll, we'll come to that. We will talk to the importance of men in women's lives and vice versa (laughs) Mm. but yeah just to sort of set the scene so she had a very wealthy upbringing kind of in one of those families where she was pretty much raised by a governess privately tutored that Mm -hmm. sort of thing and uh, grew up in this beautiful big rambling mansion with her grandma who sort of filled her with all these Irish stories because her mother was Irish and she was filled with all these fairy tales and Celtic ideas and traditions and that sort of stuff so she had this kind of bubbling imagination as a child full of all these folklores and fairy tales so this is very similar really to angela carter yes right? quite similar, similar but kind but of with a bit more money than angela yeah, carter's family yeah. has so yeah because angela carter of course being the subject of one of our earlier yeah, podcasts which if you haven't checked out yet you should plug listen to that let's turn everything into a song we this could. episode yeah we could but yes so she um, had this wonderful upbringing, this beautiful mansion, wanted for very, very little as a child, and already as quite a young child showed some artistic abilities. And drawing and painting was what she was fascinated by and what she wanted to do. Is this, like, something that was... Because, you know, in this kind of time, I suppose it's starting to die out a little bit, maybe. I guess she was a child in the teens and 20s? Yeah, yeah. Is this a part of that being part of an aristocratic family where your education as a girl is very structured around music and art and languages and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, she wasn't doing that sort of very feminine task of painting landscapes and watercolours. Yeah. She wanted to draw fairies and mystical worlds and that sort of thing was not very much encouraged. She was wanting to get her imagination out on on paper. So she her parents weren't overly sort of supportive, I think, of those particular artistic endeavours. Mm-hmm. But they did have big dreams for her and they obviously wanted her to marry quite wealthily into a nice wealthy family as well. So I think really where we first get this first sort of inklings of Leonora Carrington as a bit of a different individual for the time. <laughs> 
is sort of around about the age of when she's about 18 or so. Oh, I always thought you were going to say a little bit earlier than that. Mm, well... She shows some rebellious fighting She spirits, does. Well, she? she does. She does. Like she, she actually got, gets expelled yeah. from... Yeah. She didn't she, get expelled from one school. She got expelled from two schools. She did. Schools. That's right. She got expelled from two schools. And they sent her across the continent. They like, did. They sent yes. her away from home. Yeah, yeah. And she was expelled for rebellious behaviour, yeah. basically. <laughs> what does that even mean? Um, yes, yeah, sorry. I'm skipping ahead. I want to skip ahead. <laughs> yeah, so they did sort of send her away because she was a little bit uncontrollable. I like the name of the school. And I say this because I have it right in front of me. But Mrs. Penrose's Academy of Art. Correct, yes. And she was what expelled. What do you have to do to get expelled from Mrs. Penrose's Academy of Art? I don't know, That's actually. what I'd like to know. Other than rebellious behaviour, <laughs> it's pretty much the majority of the description that I have. Of yeah, this. <laughs> it could mean anything. Um, so it could mean anything. But, I mean, she's quite a young girl. She's got a bit of a wandering imagination. So... I guess she was just a bit disruptive. Mm. I guess she probably wasn't really applied to her studies. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, she's a bit of a troublemaker. But she does have to come back to her family to do what all aristocratic young women have to do, and that is basically go through a season in London. Yeah, become a debutante. And become a debutante. Mm. So she does come back to her family. She does come back to the folds of the family. And um, she is sent to London uh, for a season. And this is about 1936 or so, I think. Yeah, so just pre-war, right? Yeah, so just pre-war. She's about 18 years old or so. And, um, yeah, she, she's presented at the court of King George V. Yeah, which is not a terrible place to be when you're 18 years old, I think. But she hated it. Oh. She didn't want to be there. She didn't want to be dressed up in the gown. She didn't want to have to be paraded in front of other people because basically, like, this whole debutante sort of season thing is showing you around to the wealthy it's, men. I mean, it's basically are. like cattle. It I mean, is. Well, it is. like very, very fancy cattle. Incredibly where, fancy let's cattle. Spend a lot of money beautying you up, and then you're going to emerge from a staircase as the lights yeah. shine and, and glitter somebody bursts from your dress and, and pyrotechnics. Yeah, because they had pyrotechnics and, then. And the orchestra swells as you emerge onto the dance floor and as you to the gaze of men as you descend through the staircase in your gown, your very long gown, and some incredibly rich wealthy young man is waiting. is waiting at the bottom, sets his sights on you and decides to marry you. Yeah. Well, that's the plan. But, I mean, Leonora Carrington didn't want anything to do with that <laughs> whatsoever. The, the whole idea of it bored her shitless. Yeah. And it, it's a whole season, you know, so she had to go around and do all these other sorts of, like, she had to go to the races, Ascot races, she has to do all these sort of things. And there's this story of her basically spending the whole day at the Ascot races reading a book by Aldous Huxley because... She yeah, wasn't. I remember she, reading about. Yeah, that. she wasn't. She she wasn't allowed to bet. She wasn't allowed out on in the paddocks. Like she was basically there just to be a thing to and be I looked at. And I bet it's not like when you go to the race. Not that I've ever been to the races. <laughs> I have ethical reasons when I go to the races. But I hear that if one does go to the races, one drinks a lot. I don't. Yeah. Well, they do I now. Guess now. But yeah, but, you know, it's like you. If you go to the races, it's because you're going to have a good time, right? You're going to lay some bets. You're going to have some drinks. If you're a man. if well, Yeah. If you're a man, you're going to lay some today. bets. Yeah, today. But women back then weren't allowed to no. bet. Women were basically not allowed to really participate at all. And it makes me think of that scene in um, My Fair Lady. Do you know, the, <laughs> you know the one where she's at the races? Yes, I do. big hat. Yeah. And yeah. she's, you know, it's her first big test. 
yeah. of when she's a lady. It's yeah, I don't imagine Leonora Carrington's experience. She wasn't of probably was like quite that. like that. No, and there was no no songs sang. But yeah, she well she didn't participate. I mean, there wasn't really much as a woman that you could participate in. Yeah. But she sort of purposely stayed out of it and was a little bit. I think maybe that's probably a little bit offensive if you just sit in a corner and read Eilis in Gaza by yeah, Aldous Huxley. But, like, so, yeah, I could see myself doing that. <laughs> at the races? At the races. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but she actually, later on, she wrote a short story about the whole experience called The Debutant. In that particular short story, it's basically about her going to the zoo and meeting a hyena and making a deal with this hyena that maybe they could swap places for her um, to, and maybe the hyena could go in her stead to this sort of debutante dinner that's being held. And so the hyena agrees and the hyena goes wearing the face of the maid because... Well, he re- did he rip off yeah, the face not, of the maid so, Yes, sorry to, spoil, sorry to spoil the story for everyone. But yeah, so the hyena basically like eats the maid and just wears her face and goes to the... Which is so interesting because there's so many themes that like ist immediately the symbolism of a hyena yeah. whose laughter kind of mocks human laughter. Absolutely, at a yeah. Ball, kind yeah. of wearing... Wearing a mask. Okay, so you've got masquerading. Yeah. You've got mimicking laughter at a ball. And then you've got a hyena, which is a very uh, aggressive, but also kind of cunning and manipulative sort of carnivorous beast. Yeah. Who's the, you know, flipping of the, the male gaze and who is the devourer and who is the devoured. So much. So, There's so yeah. much there. I haven't, and she, I, I haven't even read the story. Oh, she's got these beautiful, wonderful descriptions of, you know, the hyena's going to wear her dainty gloves so no one can see the, the hyena's paws. And yeah. Look, I'm just going to spoil the story. Should, should I spoil the story? Look, no, spoil maybe. a lot. Alert. All right, spoil it. It's now your decision. If you want to skip ahead 30 seconds, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, good idea. Because basically what happens at the end of the story is that the hyena is also bored shitless by this whole <laughs> scenario. So it just eats its face off, eats the mace face, oh, and fuck. basically, like, runs off. That's kind of the end of the story. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. So it just kind of eats its own maid's face and then just runs away. Holy shit. Yeah. It's pretty wow. great. It's a pretty great story. But, look, even though I have summarised that story for you quite succinctly, <laughs> it's still worth a read. It's a very short story, incredibly short story. It's not going to take you too long to read, and even though I've told you what happens, it still won't ruin it. It's still fantastic. And so how old was she when she wrote that story? Do you know? No, I, I actually don't. I, I don't think she wrote it at the time. I think she wrote it re- retrospectively. Mm a little while later, probably more when she was in her early 20s. She did a lot when she was in her early 20s. Like, she she was really accomplished, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. So pretty much after her season in London, her parents kind of basically give up on her being a normal normal kind of daughter at the time. (laughs) And they send her away to art school in London. They they give up and they let her go Mm. to art school in London. And it's when she's studying art in London, and this is only about a year later, so she's only about 19 now. She's only recently kind of left the family nest. Oh, other than the time she spent away. Except at for all that time yeah, she spent yeah, in Europe yeah, when she was right. a child. Yeah, yeah. true. Um, <laughs> but at this time she meets a figure who becomes very, very influential in mm. her life. And this was the very famous surrealist painter Max Ernst. Yes, of course. Max Ernst, the German. So she's 19, but Max Ernst is about 46. Yeah. So... Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, (laughs) But he, I suppose, like, 
you know, famous artist, very charismatic. Um, at this stage, he is in his second marriage, but that doesn't stop him from taking up a relationship with Leonora because she's wonderful and interesting and young and beautiful and the why would you not? Ingenue. Exactly. And now this is a problem, this idea of the <laughs> Yeah. But we will, come, we will come back to that as well. Obviously this infuriates her family, but what are they going to do? They're yeah. not there. So she, she leaves London and she goes to Paris to be with Max Ernst, basically. So, okay, so we're in the 30s, yeah. late 30s. Yeah, well, mid-30s, mid-30s. Mid-30s, okay. So it's pre-occupation. So yeah, Second World War hasn't yeah. started yet. But is it still that sort of lively hub of artists and intellectuals that we had in Paris in the 20s? Absolutely. So yeah. so I mentioned Dadaism before, like the art movement of Dadaism. And that has, at this point sort of evolved into the surrealist movement yeah and the surrealist movement is not the tracksuit movement no <laughs> that's a disneyland of brand of tracksuits no I is feel it like it is really i want to say that it is i think on a completely random aside isn't that like lady gaga doesn't she like take her name from dadaism like isn't that just like a spin on dada is she, it she uses gaga i thought that she <laughs> okay yeah probably i don't want to say where i thought she got it from Oh, where did you think she got off <laughs> I just, it always made me think of Radio Gaga, the song by Queen. Oh, I have no idea. I've got no idea. I don't know that much about Lady Gaga. Me neither. <laughs> well, we should move on from talking about Lady Gaga. But, uh, so yeah, so surrealism was, um, had definitely sort of emerged in the 20s. And the hub of it was in Paris. And it, it did involve those, a few of those artists that I mentioned before, like Man Ray and Dali and Bunuel and... Max Ernst, of course, was one of the most famous, famous, famous surrealist <laughs> artists at the time, and it was sort of headed by Andre Breton, who uh-huh. had written. Actually, over time, he wrote about two or maybe three sort of surrealist manifestos. I think he wrote two, and I think he was working on another one that never was finished. But yeah. he wrote these surrealist manifestos about what surrealist art was, and it didn't just encompass actual visual art it also included um sculpture of course which is still visual art but it also included writing and he (laughs) wrote a surrealist novel basically with another artist called philippe suppon yeah and it was called the magnetic fields oh which of course is where the band band. it's where the band takes their name from that's true yeah and i took a short story name from a song by the magnetic fields oh my god it's, it's an all end- connected. It's an endless cycle. And also, by the way, Lady Gaga took her name from the Queen song. Oh, not from Dadaism. None. From Radio Gaga. Where did I get that from? I don't know. I think I just attributed Lady Gaga more Maybe you just more art that, insight yeah. than she really has. <laughs> I don't know. Instead of Radio Gaga, Radio What's New. Sorry. I don't know. Why did I think that? Who knows? Wait, I must have read it somewhere. Probably. It's one of those apocryphal stories that I've just taken as true. Yeah. And surrealist writing was sort of that automatic writing, unedited, uncensored, stream of conscious, that sort of thing. Yeah. And the surrealist also kind of had that game Exquisite Corpse. Oh, yes, I fucking love that game. Yeah, which is the game where you write a bit of a story and then you fold over the paper and the next person only gets, like, the last sentence yeah. and adds to it and so on and so yes. forth. So and- India and I, the composer of the Deviant Women theme, 
hey. song. Indy and I played thousands upon thousands of games of exquisite corpses when we were supposed to be in maths <laughs> or biology or wherever, whatever Excellent. it was that we were supposed to be doing. That's so awesome. And because you can obviously do that as well and also they would do that with art too. So yeah. you, you could basically fold it over with just the sort of... And you draw the shoulders. The shoulders. The torso. And, which yep. is still such a thing, isn't it? Like yep. kids' books are still all about that and you can yeah, swap totally. over their head to match the different torso, to match the different legs. Yes. So this There is- was some cards that you used to be able to collect and they were glowy. It was in the 90s. Sounds like a thing. And you would put them together. Yes. Garbage Pail Kids. Yes, Garbage Pail Kids. And they had like snotty faces yeah. and like they were all gross. It was really like grotesque gross stuff. and horrible. Yeah, it was I all like... I feel like they had that stuff on them that glowed in the dark Yes, even. they did. And it was all like snot jokes and vomit jokes yes. and like pussy pimple jokes. Yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. Wow. I wonder and if that's just an Australian thing. Or I don't know. If you live in another part of the world, let us know if you had garbage pail kids. Yeah. Or if that's just an Australian thing. Because that's an exquisite corpse thing. It is. It? So it's kind of that mixing up, mishmash of ideas. Um, surrealism was very much about dreamscapes and the unconscious and the subconscious. And it was not really about reality or logic and the art of surrealism had moved so far away from actually representing the real world yeah and this is okay so sorry to bring up old mate freud again i can't help myself go for it but i mean i know that a lot of the other surrealists kind of got into psychoanalysis and freudianism and thinking about breton did andre breton was such a follower of freud but Leonora Carrington was not. No, she wasn't. Not at all, no, was she? She rejected Freud very, very much so. Which was, I think that that's really not surprising for a woman to reject Freud. Well, actually, maybe this is probably an interesting point to talk about surrealism and women, okay? Yeah. Because, to be perfectly honest, like, Andre Breton himself sort of spoke about the, the problem of women and he really viewed women as sort of these mystical, symbolic... And surrealism was very much about this, sort of the, yeah. the art of surrealism. It's mythologising Yeah, absolutely. Woman. Yeah. Woman was presented as this very mystical creature, this holy creature that was closer to, yeah, basically all the, the mystical ideas yeah. of nature and of the world and of life and whatever. And women were very much muse you're yeah. a muse object you're of, an object yeah. you're a muse we gaze upon you we put you in our art that's what you're for and whereas leonora carrington really flipped that absolutely view, yeah totally she? and i mean there are a lot of other female surrealist artists as well who don't get their juice too yeah um who we may well talk about in other iterations in of but there are people like remedius <clears throat> barrow people like dorothea tanning like there are other artists even frida carlo mm. to an extent although interestingly enough frida carlo and uh, leonora carrington never really the best of friends yeah i was always um, wondering about that in fact frida carlo kind of referred to them as the like remedius barros and um leonora carrington she kind of referred to them as the european bitches but anyway <laughs> we'll come back to that later yeah, let's come back to let's come back to because that's actually skipping ahead that is skipping in her biography ahead. and in her her travels across the globe right but there were a lot of uh female surrealist artists and um they you know, really do kind of flip this idea. I mean, they still use, and Leonora Carrington still used a lot of mystical ideas, alchemical ideas. She was big into alchemy, big yeah. into mysticism. And you can really see that in her paintings. Yeah, this like, is probably a really good podcast to Google a lot of 
pictures of Leonora Carrington too. Like, yes. look at her paintings while we talk because yeah, you will do, understand. Yeah, do, Oh, my God, they're phenomenal. In fact, I actually have one of my desktop images that flips. It's right now. Hey. It's all of the people at the table. I don't know what it's called. Oh, it's that one I, I don't know the name of. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> that helps for everybody at home. <laughs> look it up. Anyway. Um, there are many. There's actually a lot of tables and a lot of <laughs> paintings. So you'll have to flip through all the paintings of tables to find it. Yeah, but she, she definitely... I mean, there's a quote from her which is basically on the lines of how she didn't really have time to be anybody's muse because she was too busy rebelling against her parents and trying to be an artist. Yes. So yes, this that's familiar I, to me. Yeah, so this idea of the woman as muse, really pushing back against that and saying, no, actually, women are creators as well. Yeah. We're not solely to be gazed upon and used in your art. We can create just as much and just as well as any of you can create. And... At the time when she met Max Ernst, they were kind of basically eventually chased out of Paris by Max Ernst's um, then wife, um, who kind of hunted them down and wouldn't leave them alone. I mean, I kind of understandably. Oh, really? I actually, I thought it was the Nazis who did that. The Nazis, the Nazis come into it later. Okay, all right. So we're, we're still in Paris and things are still okay in terms of the war hasn't really started to affect it hasn't really started to impact too much on this particular group just yet. And it's really Max Ernst's wife that chases them out mm. of Paris at this stage. And they go and they buy a little villa, little chateau, whatever you call it, in um, Provence. And they move to the countryside uh-huh. in Provence. And while they're there, Leonora paints a painting, which is basically just called A Portrait of Max Ernst. And in that painting, she kind of flips that idea of the muse, mm. and it's a portrait of Max Ernst. It's the female gaze looking at the know. man, yeah. which is completely the opposite of what surrealism to that point had been was about. It was <clears throat> it was very much about you know making these kind of mystical images of the feminine form, and not all surrealist art was about this, but a lot of it. Yeah, was. there is definitely. I mean, even if you just think about Picasso's. Portrait of the woman, right? The weeping woman? Or yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he is very much a, a male-centric kind of gaze in surrealism that is the most predominant or the most popular thing that we sort of see even, yeah. even now. Yeah. Despite the fact that, yeah, as I say, there was so much other stuff going on as well. And, and Carrington was kind of at the forefront of that, turning that gaze around. So while she was living with Ernst in Provence, he was arrested but at first of all he was arrested by the french and basically because he was because he's german because he's german yeah and after a few weeks he's released he's not held by the french for too long but then once france is occupied he is then arrested by the nazis and he's interned by the nazis and it's like a considered because this is has a lot to do with his art right it does he was considered to be like a subversive degenerate yeah. sort of like totally degenerate yeah. look let's just say surrealism and nazis didn't didn't go hand in hand yeah. <laughs> the nazis were not big on surrealist art but it's interesting because hitler did have that whole thing about like weird mystical objects you know how he yeah, was like obsessed true. with like the holy grail and stuff which i mean i'm sure and i know that's really disconnected but i'm just thinking about that in this he was obsessed with art but he was obsessed with a lot more classical art yeah definitely yeah um, as far as I know. Not that I know. Heaps about Hitler's artistic preferences. Yeah, so the Nazis were not big on surrealists. Yeah, so France occupied by the Germans now, by the Nazis. So Carrington is kind of left alone in this little chateau in Provence. 
And she doesn't know if Ernst is coming back. She doesn't know if she's waiting for him or if he's lost to her forever. Yeah. And she kind of starts to go a little strange at this stage, right? So she starts fasting. She just won't eat for days on end. She's obsessed with physical labour. So she spends all of her time in the garden. Um, From dawn till dusk, she works in the garden. And she kind of keeps at this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Wasting away. Wasting away. Yeah. And um, drinking things like orange blossom water and kind of um, that's what she thinks will sustain her. And It's kind of like it's a mystic's diet it in, is. in a way, isn't it? Is. It is. Like, so it's kind of interesting because, I mean, this rejection of the idea of women as mystical, but she still takes a lot she's of... Kind of she's doing kind it. of she's doing the thing that she's doing mystics the mystic do. Thing. She's doing the mystic thing. <laughs> Fasting and drinking orange blossom water. is a mystical That's thing a, to do, Yeah, right? it is. So she does this for a while until one of her British friends, a woman called Catherine Yarrow, turns up on the doorstep uh, with her companion... And companion. Companion. And they sort of, they see that she's not in a great state. Yeah. And they're like, you know what, we, we kind of need to get out of France because the war is a thing now um, <laughs> and we kind of need to get out of here. So they bundle her into their little Fiat. And, Into um, a, a little Fiat. A Fiat. Like a, a little, little Fiat. Fiat car. A car. Oh, wow. A little Fiat. It's a really I specific detail, It was so it? specific. I didn't expect it. I, yeah, just, I, I thought I misheard you. I don't know why I was so specific about I that. I love that detail. Bring, but it's a specific more, piece of I detail. Like, I love that she was bundled into a Fiat. So she was bundled into a Fiat. <laughs> um, and she sold her little chateau, which... Um, her and Ernst had sort of painted murals on and made sculptures of, and um, she sold it just to, mm. like, one of the neighbours and had to abandon it. Is that house still standing, by the way? I'm not sure. But in some of her um, short stories that she writes later on, she does mention camping by the river. She mentions a lot of time that's spent there. It's like a really, really formative time in her right. life living in this little place. Because can you imagine if you were the, the person who purchased that house and then you were like... Oh, look at these murals. Better paint over these. And then 10 years later, someone's like, Oh, what the fuck did you do? Do you know how you, much money Yeah, do you know you just painted over a Mac in Actually, I'll come to this again later in the story. Right. But I have been to a house uh, where Leonora Carrington was painted straight on the wall. Oh. And I did get to touch it. Ugh. Even though you shouldn't really touch art. But I stood but there did and I did it anyway. Because I, like, I, I was in a house where Leonora Carrington had stayed and painted stuff on the wall. Yeah. So anyway, but we'll come to that later <laughs> on. Um, so she's bundled into the Fiat and they drive to Spain. And the whole time that they drive to Spain, Carrington sort of later recounts corpses on the side of the road. Like the war had really started at right, this Right, so this isn't her like going a little bit mental. This isn't her going to crazy at this stage because she's been fasting this, this is, is actually genuinely yeah shit's gotten real yeah, this in is France. legitimately the war has hit france mm. and things are really going horribly badly and she basically gets out of france um just in time really and gets across into spain and she heads to madrid and kind of accounts of the time are that pretty much the whole ride to madrid with catherine and catherine's partner michelle She's a bit crazy in the car. Yeah. She's losing her mind pretty much. And by the time she gets to Madrid, she's not all there, let's say. And so by this time, she's kind of 
she's really in a state of escalating madness, to be perfectly honest. Mm. And Catherine writes home to her family to let them know. And Leonora herself sort of wrote in her diary that in the political confusion and the torrid heat, I convinced myself that Madrid was the world's stomach. I had been chosen for the task of restoring this digestive organ to health. And she kind of... Whoa. Yeah. That's a weird metaphor. It's a weird thing to say. And she sort of said this thing to the British Embassy. And she she kind of got bundled up and put into a mental asylum. I... Yeah. Well, I knew that she ended up in a mental asylum. Yes. Yeah. And I imagine if you go to the British Embassy and say that Madrid is a stomach. Yeah. And I am tasked... I That's the, the crazy part, isn't it? It's not like... Madrid is the metaphor with the stomach. Yeah. It's, I am the one who is tasked with cleaning this mess up. Yeah, I am in charge of fixing it. And yeah. she did fully believe that she was now in charge of putting everything to rights. Wow. And so she is... And she, okay, hang on, sorry, interrupting you. Um, she is early 20s She's, about, she's about 23. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, I would like to say, we keep using the word crazy. So, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's probably, like, it's not really, you know, it's um, deepest apologies. It is a habit. It's a habit. Yeah. Um, and mental, you know, mental illness is a real thing. So I think crazy is just a throw, throwaway term. But yeah. um, at this stage, she was very mentally unwell, Yes. let's say. So she's bundled into a mental asylum. In this asylum, she's specifically given a thing called cardiazole. Which induces seizures. Oh, so that's yeah, that's a drug, right? It's a drug, and the whole How point strange. of this—the whole point of this drug—is that it induces convulsions. But why would you want to give that to a person? I have no idea because it's the nineteen thirties, and <laughs> this is where mental hey, health let's is at. Test out some drugs on people. Let's, and she was given lots of other things, barbiturates and like all sorts of cra- weird things. Wow! And she was. Basically, well, she, like she also had electroshock therapy. I'm not sure if she actually was given electroshock therapy. Oh, I heard that she was given convulsion if, therapy. Well, if cardiazol induced convulsions, oh. which was similar to electroshock therapy, right? Okay. And I think it was given to her as an alternative to electroshock therapy, but the results same principle kind of thing. Same principle, and the results were the same. Yeah, and she'd basically be strapped to a bed naked for days this... and left convulsing. Jesus, it's just I, I'm. It's pretty horrendous. It's horrendous. And the thing is as well is that the mental asylum that she was sent to was a rich mental asylum. It yeah, well, for, this it is the for, thing. It was for like, rich people. Yeah. These because pri- her parents were paying for it. Private asylums, they they look really nice and they get to go on leisurely walks through the And there's beautiful gardens. gardens. Yep. But then shut the doors and there is like hydropathy happening and there's electroshock therapy yeah. and there's all sorts of crazy stitch yeah. shit that went on. I've read too many accounts of what went on in I was thinking that I was like I was like, like Lauren's gonna be all over the private mental asylum yeah. thing. Yeah. But it's it's pretty horrific because I mean yeah a lot of money was was poured into these sorts of places and they were using what they thought was state of the art oh look technology. I, I don't doubt that their intentions were were good yeah you know like I don't think that we can say they were all horrible people who were deliberately doing horrible things because I don't think that's true at all it's well maybe it's sometimes true I think there probably yeah. were horrible people doing horrible things but also I think they I think still a are. lot of it I think a lot of it really was 
here's a new experiment. Let's try this. Let's see how yeah. this goes. Let's, Let's see how this works. You know, out. we've got to we've got to try and fix these people. Yeah. And mental health is like the brain is a weird, uncharted territory that we don't really understand yeah. any part of. And as with, I mean, uh, like Breton earlier as well. I mean, Freud was still playing a lot into how psychoanalysis mm. was working, into how mental asylums are working. I mean, psychoanalysis was still driving a lot of these sorts of treatments and how they were approached and with uh leonora's time spent in this particular mental asylum she writes about it later and she writes about it in sort of a novella um, i was gonna say is it a short story collection or a novella uh, or there's is, both there's both there's both it's basically the story about her time in a mental asylum is called down below and it's kind of hard to actually figure out the truth of her experience from mm. the fiction of the story. And because we know that she's so, like, wildly imaginative. Precisely. Right? And it was actually André Breton who eventually encouraged her to write about her time in the asylum later on. And as we know as well from speaking about it before, André Breton was very much obsessed with this idea of sort of, like, the convulsing beauty. Yeah. He was obsessed. The hysteric. The hysteric. The... the beautiful, hysteric woman mm. as this idea of mystical enlightenment. And, I mean, Carrington herself even kind of makes these notes kind of later on about Breton and about his kind of obsession with this sort of idea and also about the safety of, well, of him idolising this kind of hysteria, this female hysteria, but never having to experience himself. Mm -hmm. Like, it's all well and good when you're not the one that has to go through it. It's all well and good to romanticise it which yep. he does very much, which and which like, a lot of yeah. surrealists do, yeah. romanticise this idea of the mad woman yep. when you don't have to be the one that's strapped to the bed naked and given seizure-inducing drugs. Yeah, which is kind of... I mean, that's that has a history with Charcot in Paris, and he had, like, basically performing hysterics. You yeah. know, people would come to watch... These very beautiful women. These hysterical women that he had kind of induced into these states of, of yeah, of yeah, hysteria. Which is shocking really it's it's horrific and so Carrington was submitted to this kind of treatment and down below is very interesting and also she kind of mentions sexual assault as well and it's hard to kind of know how much of that is part of what may have been um, hallucinated or imagined and how much of it is real like Biographical fact. You know, the the things that are imagined as well is how much of that is a way of telling narrative, of of inventing, of making something Mm. bigger than what it is, you know, using metaphor and symbolism in order to process and understand a traumatic event. Yeah. You know, so even if like there is, are these elements that are too larger than life or too obscure, or, or whatever it might be, that doesn't mean that there's not an emotional truth at the heart of that. Ooh, experience. emotional truths. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like a good emotional you know truth. I, mean? I do, I do. I like a good emotional truth. But, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a very fascinating point in her life. And, I mean, she came out of it scarred, as anyone would. But what sort of happened was eventually word got back to her family that she was being treated with these uh, seizure-inducing drugs, that she was being strapped to beds, that she was sort of being treated not quite in the way that her parents imagined she'd be treated, where I 
sort of think they maybe strolls around the lake. Yeah, a bit of a rest cure. Rest, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing. That's not what was happening. It was much more intense than that. So there's this story, and again, it's a bit of an apocryphal story. How true it is, I'm not sure. <laughs> but the story goes that they basically sent her nanny. Oh yeah. In a submarine. <laughs> To rescue her. That's so great. A submarine. A submarine. And, was, and it was like an Irish nanny or something. Yeah, like it was her Irish right? nanny. Like, yeah, who, I didn't know about the submarine. Um, and they sent her in a submarine to rescue her. I don't know if that's true or not, that's but so that's the Wes, way this... Wes Anderson should make this movie. <laughs> the nanny was wearing a small red cap. Yeah. It was very Steve Zissou. Um <laughs> Yes. So I don't know how true that is, but... That's the way the um, story goes. But they got goes. her out. Well, so the nanny arrives and the nanny gets her out and takes her to Lisbon. Uh, so now they're in Portugal. And the theory is is that what's going to happen next is they're going to bundle her on a ship and send her to South Africa. She doesn't want to go to South Africa. So on the day that she's supposed to be bundled onto the, onto the ship to go to South Africa, she kind of faints this thing of like, oh, I'm just going to go buy some gloves, all right? <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, sure, go buy some gloves. So she goes to buy some gloves. I'm doing inverted commas, which you can't see. And she basically <laughs> slips out the window and runs away. Oh, my God, that's amazing. And she goes and takes sanctuary at the Mexican embassy. Now, at the Mexican embassy, there's a man called Renato Luduc, who's a uh, Mexican poet and a friend of Pablo Picasso. And she basically applies to him to save her. And out of pity, they get married. Ah, uh, yes. A marriage. Um, a marriage uh, of a convenience. Visa marriage. A visa marriage. So they get married for the visa so she can get a Mexican visa and so she can leave with him and they can leave Europe. So together, they get married. They leave Europe and they escape to New York. Mm. And they arrive in New York. And interestingly enough, they arrive in New York at sort of the same time as our good old friend Max Ernst. Max. Old Maxi Max. Old Maxi arrives in New York <laughs> with his new love interest, uh-huh. Peggy Guggenheim. Oh. And she, of course, of the Guggenheim Museum. Yeah, the Guggenheim, Guggenheim family. Guggenheim. Guggenheim. The Guggenheims. Guggenheims. Very altruistic art patron mm. family. Um, who have all the famous museums around the world. So Matt Sance is now shackled up with her, but um, still... Shackled up or just shacked up? Shacked up. <laughs> well, kind of shackled up because it's really, for him, it's much more a, a relationship of convenience. Oh, yeah, Because yeah. she's kind of looking after him, paying his yeah. way. Well, she would have all of the... Yeah, she's got all the money. Yeah, the money, the the connections, and the... a lot of the stories. Because Max Ernst had children as well, and one of his sons kind of talks about how infatuated Max Ernst still was with Leonora Carrington at this time. Yeah, and how much he wanted to be with Leonora Carrington again. But by this point in time, Leonora Carrington's very much over Max Ernst, but um, still happy to kind of use him. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and kind of like. She's still really young, though. She's still only in her mid-twenties, right? Yeah, like, yeah, mid to late-twenties now. Mm. So now she's in, in New York, and this is kind of where her artistic career really starts to shine, and this is where she starts to have proper exhibitions and starts to get real kind of praise for her art. Yeah. And she starts to exhibit there. And she's there for only about a year or so until... Actually, this is about 1941 now. So they've escaped the war... Now they're in, in New York. And they're there for about two years. All this time her husband is working in the Mexican embassy. Yeah. He, he, is he a diplomat? He's a diplomat, yeah. yep. 
And um, then in about 1943, they leave New York and they move to Mexico. Mm. Yeah. So now she's in Mexico and she spends basically the rest of her life in Mexico. Yeah, because I was going to say, she's actually really famous for being in Mexico. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. I think she's kind of, I mean, to me, and I don't know if this is just because I know a lot of her stuff through you, but she's kind of synonymous with, like, Mexico. She is, yeah. She's she's very famous in Mexico. And I, yeah, a couple of years ago, I went sort of on the hunt. I went on the Leonora Carrington hunt in Mexico, and I traced her through Mexico, and it was fabulous. It was Which wonderful. is so cool. Um, because I'm, I don't know if this is obvious, but I'm a real Leonora Carrington fan. I don't know if I can tell. I don't know if you can tell can... that. Um, so, yeah, I did go to Mexico specifically to chase her down. Well, not to chase her down because she was already she should already passed away by that stage but yeah footstepping to 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 follow in her footsteps and there's a lot of uh public art um a lot of statues and sculptures sculptures and stuff just like yeah around the place absolutely and a few of them i sat on (laughs) and had my photograph taken in front of and it was very exciting for me um so she basically spends the rest of her life in mexico and while she's in mexico i mean there's a real expat community there of sort of european refugees who did leave europe during the war and are these particularly artists and a lot of them are artists and this is where she meets remedius barro this is where she um meets katie horner who's a photographer and they sort of, especially with Remedios Barro, who's another brilliant surrealist artist, we may talk about her mm. one of these times in the future. They really build a relationship that's built a lot on their joint love of, and Remedios Barro was Spanish, their joint love of alchemy, their joint oh, love yeah. of mythology, their interest in Mexican, Aztec, Mayan all these popovo all these mm. sorts of really mystical ideas and that she's like how much is she painting in this period a like, lot and the all of these themes are are, are really evident aren't yeah. they in her in her work and what happens at this point as well is that she actually leaves um her husband Things haven't been. I mean, I mean it, was, a, it, was, it never, was never really. It was a never. Was no, it? it wasn't. I mean, they obviously grew to care for each other very much, but it was never a real marriage. Mm. And so the marriage breaks down, and she actually remarries a Hungarian Jew, um, who's also a press photographer, Americo Weiss, and that's her. You know, her real, her real, real love. love. And they have some children together. But yeah, so this is kind of the community that she's now in. This very artistic, expat community that lives in Mexico City. And also at this stage, this is where she really starts to support herself 100% with her art. And she gets a patron as well, a British patron, an eccentric called Edward James. Edward James is a fascinating, fascinating man. And he lived in Mexico as well, and uh, he loved her art. He was a collector of surrealist art. He was at one stage had the largest collection of surrealist art in the world. Imagine having that much money and that he, you can just go around buying all the well, art you want. Interestingly enough as well, like yes, he was old money and his money was family money, but he also was at the forefront way back when, right back at the beginning, and he was buying art off of artists that were nobodies. Ah, so he's he's getting really good value for money. Then. He's getting really good. He was even buying art of people like Salvador Dali before Salvador Dali was right. somebody. So he had a good eye. So he had a great eye, and he ended up with this massive collection of surrealist art, which he later in life had to sell off to fund building an amazing place in the jungle, in the Mexican jungle, called Las Posas, which is another place that I went to on the trail of Leonora Carrington. 
fucking amazing. <laughs> it does. It sounds like Wonderland. It is Wonderland. It is Wonderland in the Mexican jungle, and I highly recommend <laughs> everyone goes there. So it's just like it's sculptures in the jungle. It's made crazy by surrealist concrete structures in, in a jungle. jungle. And is it made by a variety of artists? No, or it's just Leonora not, Carrington. No, no, no. So um, Las Pasas itself was an Edward James project. Right. And he designed it and just the local people made it. Ah. In the typical Mexican fashion where you just put some Rio and some concrete together and that's how you make it. There's not a lot of structural <laughs> engineering going on there. But it's brilliant. It's wonderful. That is a side note. Okay. Edward James, crazy eccentric English art patron. Awesome. And so... The world he, needs a good, healthy dose of people like that. Tell me about it. If there are any eccentric art patrons out in the world who are looking for anyone to subsidise, Lauren and I are very welcome. <laughs> we would like to hear from We'd you. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> I've been searching for a patron forever. <laughs> it would be great. So Edward James comes on board Leonora Carrington train and buys a lot of her art and basically keeps her afloat. Yeah, and so she kind of lives out the rest of her days in Mexico making art and donating a lot of it to the city. There's beautiful Carrington sculptures and structures you can go and visit in Mexico City next time you're there. I bet that people even take them for granted. There's I think so they many do. Of them. And have I told you my Leonora Carrington painting story about when I was in Mexico City? Uh, maybe. I went to this antiques market Right. What? No. And I was wandering around the antiques market yeah. and there was a guy selling paintings. And I was like just wandering past and I looked at this one painting and I was like, that painting is very Leonora Carrington y. And he was like, it and, is. And then I was like, excuse me, can I look at that painting? And he's like, sure. And he handed it to me and he was like, it's by Leonora Carrington. Holy shit. And I was like, mm, is it really though? <laughs> And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a genuine Leonora Carrington. And I was it's like... A, it's an actual, not a reproduction, not a it, Well, it, it, it was, was, it was a, yeah, it was definitely, it was just a, a original on canvas. And it was in the style of some of her very early art. And it did have a signature, Leonora Carrington. Yeah. However, I'm pretty sure it was a it's fake a oh. and he wanted about the equivalent of about 400 right, Australian okay. dollars for it and I wasn't willing to invest in a $400 fake because the thing was as well as I wasn't that big on the picture yeah. if it had been because it would be for the sake of it yeah if like, it had been like a much more striking picture mm. I would have been like well I'm just gonna take a gamble yeah. and buy this $400 picture that I like anyway and see but if you are in Mexico City this is a couple. Of, this was a couple of years ago. But go <laughs> to the local antiques market, and maybe it is a Leonora Carrington. Maybe it Carrington. is a Leonora Carrington. There's probably maybe just a bunch of Leonora Carringtons just floating around in people's houses that, and maybe they don't even know what they've got. There are also a lot of fakes. Yeah. Of, there are a lot of Leonora Carrington fakes floating around on the market, um, as there are with, with any, everything. with every artist. Yeah. But yeah, so that was my. My brush and I, I with possibly purchasing a Leonora yeah, Carrington. But you did touch a real Leonora Carrington, so that's exciting. Oh, I did, yeah. But that was on a wall, and I couldn't possibly. You couldn't take it home. I couldn't take that home. But yeah, no, I've I've travelled the world trying to find some Leonora. Car I went to a wonderful Leonora Carrington sort of retrospective, I suppose, in Liverpool a couple of years ago as well. Like she's out there, people. Yeah. She's out there. Go find her art. It is spectacular. 
and yeah, that's. I think that's the message I that's want to it. drive home. For well, today. I really hope that people do go and Google the Google image search Leonora Carrington. Well, a few weeks ago, we told you to Google image search Victorian seances. Yeah. And I got feedback from people saying that they did yeah. and that it was amazing. Yes. And so I guarantee you're going to have the same amazing experience if you go and Google Leonora Carrington. You will. And. Even though her art is probably what she's most famous for, she, as I said before, she is an author as well. She did write yeah, um, a lot of Yeah, and The Hearing Trumpet is and fantastic. Yes. So she novel. wrote one novel called The Hearing Trumpet, and it is brilliant. It's about this, like, 90-year-old lady with a beard called Marion <laughs> yeah. Levy. And it's just so it's fun wonderful. and, like, whimsical. And it is. It's yeah, it's beautiful. Terrific. So she just she just lived out the rest of her very long life in Mexico, yeah, painting she, with her husband and her kids. Is yeah, that, pretty is that much. The deal? Yeah, yeah, and donating art to the masses. Um, she was about ninety four when yeah, she died, which is nice. So, I, I like that she lived such a long, happy and productive life, and that she was. She did, and, and you know, this is one of the people who actually did get the recognition that she deserves in her lifetime. Yes, she did. She was very famous. Um, in her lifetime she was very much admired she did receive awards and honors she has um, an OBE doesn't she yes she does she has yeah. an OBE yeah she does she also received a lifetime achievement award at the women's caucus for art convention in New York back in the 1980s yep. so um, yeah she she definitely wasn't underrated mm. in her later life but I think when we talk about her as a deviant woman her art was definitely subversive, definitely edgy. Yeah, because of that way that she does kind of portray women and yeah. mythology. And and she does use a lot of symbols. There's a lot and, of horses, isn't there? Yeah, a lot of horses. Horses were very influential mm. in her youth as well. And she uses a lot of horse imagery in her art. And also hyenas as well. Yeah. Going back to the debutante. But animal imagery, there's always animal imagery in her paintings. I like that her characters, the people that she paints, rather, they always have this really wild, frizzy hair. <laughs> yes, they do. Is that, that's not, is that yeah. just something that I've noticed? Yeah, no, they do. I feel like it's often very frizzy hair, and I just really like it. Her self-portrait, she has a self, uh, one particular self-portrait where there's like a big bit of frizzy hair mm. going on, and also horses, lots of horses. Yeah. But yeah, so there's a lot of imagery and, and symbolism, and... When you look at a Carrington painting, there, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different stages of her art, but a lot of her paintings are just full of little alchemical symbols in the corner yeah. that you kind of have to really think about, like dense imagery, dense symbolism. There's a lot to take in and a lot to think about. And you can spend hours looking at one Carrington painting and continue yeah. to get things out of it. And that's what I love so much but they also even if you just look at them at a glance they kind of have this ethereal like i don't know magic party sense about them. yeah magic like, party <laughs> Woo, magic but party also, she kind of had like weird magic but didn't she pull a lot of pranks on oh yes she did parties? yes yeah we were going to talk about that sorry she did she was she was sort of known for being a little bit eccentric in terms of <laughs> which is um, not surprising if you look at her paintings you can kind of tell that she's the type of person who's yeah eccentric and also i mean some people just sort of speculate that this was a sort of carry on from her time in the asylum as well mm. that maybe she was you a know bit a bit kooky. kooky but yeah there were stories of you know her kind of holding parties and halfway through going and having a shower 
and then kind of coming back just in a towel and then sort of just letting the towel drop and then kind of just wandering about the party naked. <laughs> Other stories about her being in a restaurant and kind of just starting to cover her feet in mustard. <laughs> stories about... Like cutting people's hair and yeah, stuff? Yeah, stories about her making omelettes out of people's hair like <laughs> while people were sleeping, cutting their hair. And then cooking it in an omelette. I wouldn't like that very much. I don't. I wouldn't want to have an omelette. A uh, hair omelette. <laughs> no hair omelette for me. I'd rather thanks. not. No. Same. I'd rather the mustard feet. Mustard feet are fine. I'm not totally, hair omelettes. I'm totally okay with mustard feet. But yeah, so quite an eccentric. Yeah. Um, so the so life of the party. Go and look her up. See the eccentrism for yourselves because it is actually, <laughs> it's great. She's wonderful and I. Can't speak highly enough. No. And read her books as well. Yeah, definitely. Hearing Trumpet. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant, the Hearing Trumpet. Get on board. So, is there anything, any last comments on Leonora before we... No, I think I've I've gushed enough about Leonora Carrington. I think it's basically up to um, all of those out there in listening podcast land to have a look and learn more about her for yourself. Share with us, if you will, what your favourite Leonora Carrington painting yeah, is. Yeah, do. Or story, if you read any of her stories. Please do let us know. And where are we going to go next time? Next time, we're, we've got something a little bit different. Yeah, actually. we do, don't we? Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. I don't want to give too much away. But I guess this is a little bit closer to home this time. Yeah. And we're going to branch out and have our first guest. Ooh, first guest. Yes, we yeah. are. Yes. So join us next week. Should we should, do we say the guests? Next or do we fortnight. We'll, okay, we'll Lauren. save it. We'll keep 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 it on the Let's keep, keep it on the download. Keep it on the DL. Yep. You will see it. You'll see it on the website in a fortnight. <laughs> and that will tell you who it is. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very exciting. So we'll have some very special guests and Deviant Women will be back in a fortnight. So thank you for joining us once again. And remember, nobody has yet taken Alicia up on her... On my merchandising offer. On my merchandising offer. So... <laughs> Please, I really want to make merchandise. Come on. We just want to know that you can. Yeah. Let me make you merchandise. <laughs> let me do it. Oh. And um, a big thank you to India Hui for music and composition and to Brendan Davies for doing the sound. And thank you for listening. Thanks. Tell your friends. Rate us and subscribe to us and review us do if it. you want to. Please do I it. mean, if if you like us enough. Yeah, if you like us enough. If you don't, then shut up. Fine. Say nothing. Anyway, cool. Cool beans. Excellent. Well, Good we'll start. see you next time. See you next time. Bye.